Okay, so in previous episodes of UK Export Advice, we've heard that the Chinese already buy $144 billion worth of goods using cross-border e-commerce. That means Chinese consumers are browsing e-commerce sites for companies in other countries, yes, British ones too, and buying $144 billion worth of stuff and paying for it to be shipped to China. And by 2025, China will account for 50% of the global luxury market. Yes, that's right, in less than five years, half of all luxury goods bought globally will be bought by Chinese consumers. We've also heard it's really not that difficult to sell consumer goods into China with the right partners and strategy. So it's easier than ever for British luxury brands and retailers to sell into the world's biggest luxury market. But, and it's quite a big but, how do you successfully translate your brand so that it will work in China? We're not talking just about language here, we're talking about what your brand communicates and how to make it desirable to the right Chinese consumers. My name is David James and in this episode I'm talking once again to Tom Griffiths of Verb China, an expert in translating British brands into Chinese success. Oh, and as a quick aside, if you'd like me to make a podcast or videos for your business, drop me a line on david at brighthorngroup.com. That's david at brighthorngroup.com or look me up on LinkedIn. I also make videos in Chinese too, if you're serious about getting into China. So, Tom, in the last episode, we were talking about Verb China, the agency that helps British luxury brands make their first move in China effectively. And offline, we had a chat about what we what we would like to talk about. And you were really passionate, for, for want of a better term, and I think passionate's fair enough, about translating British brands into a British luxury brand that works in China. And we're not just talking about language translation, are we? But just give us an overview of, of what you do when you're, and I don't know if translating is the best word, but but what are we actually talking about here? Because I, I I kind of understand it based on the conversation we had, but I think you you explain it better. What, I'm sure. going to start, I'm going to stop talking. You start talking. I, I, <laughs> I haven't come up with a sensible question yet, but I, I think we're on the same page. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I got it. Right. Um, so, uh, like, yeah, translating is kind of a good word for it. I, I, I've heard trans creating used a lot in marketing, but I, I'm not a big fan of those kind of awkward portmanteaus. And so we'll go for translating brands. Translating a brand from the UK into China is um, it, it's an interesting challenge because you, I, I've seen all sorts of brands go into China. I've seen brands go in and say, look, we're not changing anything. We're going to go 100% as who we are. and um, Chinese people will buy us because you know we exist and we're this amazing brand and this is us and so and it's it's it is quite arrogant um, and fine you know some brands deserve deserve to go in with some arrogance because they do have that that history and that that kind of prestige but it doesn't really work um, as unsurprising there but so like charging in with a full this is going to work for Britain this is exactly what what our our consumer on Bond Street would understand isn't necessarily going to work. I've also seen the other side of the coin where brands will 100% localize and will, will try and do everything they can to, uh, to appeal to the Chinese audience. And then what you get there is a confusion uh, 
at the very least when a you know China is the largest outbound tourist market quite a lot of your consumers in China will come across your brand in other markets particularly in your home market as well lots of Chinese come to the UK to visit and might well see your store and and suddenly have this weird brand disconnect of well I I thought they were a local brand or I I I thought that's a very different brand from back home um and so for me it's about ensuring that you you find a happy medium somewhere in between of course um find somewhere towards towards the local market but not too far towards the local market so as to uh so as to damage the brand integrity um a, a typical example of this is a lot of a lot of british luxury brands do trend do tend to trade on the countryside concept that kind of countryside idyll that uh the, you know the rolling somerset hills or the, the 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 big old country pile the estate all those kinds of things and that that aristocratic lifestyle almost and it works like it's it's a strong image of britain uh whether it's still a current image i don't know but it's a strong image of britain that works quite well in the luxury marketing world in the luxury luxury sector um countryside in china is is not that uh countryside is very much uh, you know since the 90s china's main story is the urbanization of the population and the shift away from the the poorer countryside into the the developed urban city and the big skyscrapers and the the you know the towering glass and metal buildings that everyone lives in and works in um what that then means is it's very difficult to have these conversations about country life and countryside without having that weird disconnect for a lot of consumers and find consumers in tier 1 cities big travelers big you know big probably consumers of international media as well as local media um but as you filter out into tier 2 and tier 3 cities some of the the poorest cities or at least the less connected cities to the outside world then then you're you're going to you know you're going to really risk confusing people with this element of like expensive luxury countryside um increasingly interestingly that's that's a slow shift out again i know that there's a, a bit of a shift back towards uh nature and a bit of a shift back towards rediscovering countryside and and getting away from urban spaces that a lot of wealthier chinese are are looking at now which is great it's a really interesting new trend and i'm quite excited where that will take branding long term but for the last 20 years launching in with a very country focused brand isn't really going to fly in a particularly urban luxury market in china so then how we we go specifically about doing this what we do is we we take a brand and we really like we tear it apart we really look at everything within that brand we go through all of the brand documents that have been built we interview everyone we can from founders right through to brand directors right through to copywriters who work on social media accounts everyone to get their understanding of their brand what makes it work for them we pull it all pull it all down compile it all make a big library and get as into the brand as we possibly can right down to the dna strands so then we pull it all apart we take everything out all the elements we can out we break it all down into these distinctive little uh cultural tropes within that and then we weigh each of those individual elements in the market in china and so we weigh them with uh our creative team so we got some fantastic creatives who have worked for many years in both markets who understand kind of nuance of brand here and understand the market in China very well. Um so our our copywriters are of course all native Chinese. I I mean I speak Chinese but I'm 
I'm such a far away from being a copywriter. That's a special skill that involves, I think, a good number of years of training and a you know proper good copy is is rare and hard to come by. And it, it's noticeable in the West when someone's thrown their intern on a social media account, and it's noticeable in China as well. So getting good, I get my like good senior copywriting people. I get great designers and. We tear everything apart and we look at that individually from a creative point of view. We also look at it in the market itself. And so we've got two different ways of doing that. We weigh it against you know, big data sources. And so we look at it across uh, search domains, across social posting, general social listening tools that we use, um, and some other news gathering tools as well, just to see what what the kind of zeitgeist is around each of these brand elements that we've pulled apart. And then... We also do some focus groups for the larger projects that we work on. And so we'll, we'll pull together focus groups from different parts of China. China's huge, of course. It's very difficult to say China thinks X or China thinks Y when it is, you know, it's the size of Europe, really, with, with more linguistic difference and more, you know, cultural and socioeconomic difference than Europe. Um, and so ensuring that you, you kind of, you capture as many different views of each of these elements in the market then we add relative relative weights to each of these elements so we we kind of work out what's going to resonate better in the market what's going to not resonate so well or what's going to you know put consumers off and then we put it all back together again and from the different weighting we can work out what's going to be more important to lead with what's not how we're going to kind of dial things up and down and which parts of the brand we know are very important in the West here that we need to educate around versus which parts we can just assume that people are going to be comfortable with and lead with. Um, so, so it's a little technical there, but I, I, I hope that kind of makes sense as to my sort of methodology behind doing branding in, in China and doing brand localization. I, I, I like it. I like the, uh, the, the depth and the analysis. I, I come from a, a degree of an analytical background and doing this kind of thing tearing things apart into its const constituent parts and um you, you use the word trope and zeitgeist so i'm i'm kind of going <laughs> he's, he's got to be worth whatever the fee is uh, good 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 consulting words like those in there that's brilliant um, yeah, so, um i guess there's a couple of things i guess I've got two questions right on the top of my head and i'm i i, I can see that you could branch in either direction i think Possibly the most important one is who is it that buys luxury goods in China? Now, uh, we're going to have to deal in stereotypes because big market, different people. But what what type of sectors are there in the luxury market um, that we may or may not be surprised about? Because from from my point of view, as in I know almost nothing, I see occasionally the obviously very rich Chinese students that come over and you see a whole load of them at, at Stonehenge in some very nice BMWs and Mercedes and all the rest of it and looking very en point or, or whatever the word is, you know, uh, looking fashionable and cool and all the things that I've got no idea about. So I get a sense there's there's kind of the kids of billionaires and there's probably the billionaires themselves. But is is luxury something like in the UK where lots of people aspire to it and there's this kind of split between the new money, old money, and that you know just give me a, a, as best you can a canter through the luxury landscape, I suppose is the question. Sure. Yeah. I mean 
it's an interesting thing because, as you say, like Chinese students do buy luxury, um, and it's it's a surprise because when you when you talk to a a luxury brand here in the West and you you mention like students, they would never, of course, have students on their target list of consumers. Uh, in in the UK here, students do not buy luxury in the UK. Um, well, I mean, most students. Let me. I'm going to stereotype a little bit too on this and, and say, yeah, most students wouldn't wouldn't, of course, buy luxury here. Wouldn't they'd, be the case. They'd certainly buy the knockoff equivalent, though. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, but then in China, there, um, yes, there is. There's there's far more wealth. There's far more wealth shared intergenerationally, um, and there's far more wealth around. Uh, a lot of wealth has been created in China over the last few years, and a lot of that wealth um, has, yes, has gone to quite a few billionaires, and there's there's more female billionaires in China than the rest of the world combined, I believe, or self-made female billionaires, which is fantastic. And a lot of this is, is quite new. It's, um, it's you know, two or three generations at, at the very most uh, because China had such a, a catastrophic uh, re... <laughs> I'm trying to politically say the sense of it. Uh, you know, catastrophic shift to, <laughs> to how it was going um, not too long ago. And it's only really been the last sort of 30 years that China's China's really taken off, and and within that time, a lot of wealth has been generated, and that wealth is is shared around due to one-child policies, things like that. There there often is only one scion to uh, inherit the money, and uh, a lot of the doting of you know, eight grandparents and four uncles and aunts and so on and so forth. Like it it, it does filter down quite quite heavily to uh, to one one or or a few in in this current generation. Who do you know fairly well out of it? So that's that's why there's there's kind of an obvious spending there. But what's quite interesting is there's there is more of a competitive nature to it. It seems it's, there's an element of keeping up with the the Joneses in China that is fairly strong. And so um, I mean, recently um, I was in a um, a tier two city called Nanchang. So uh, Nanchang is the capital of Jiangxi Province. So it's it's uh, kind of uh, it's difficult to describe, isn't it? It's in the middle there, somewhere in the middle. Um, kind of, if you you go to Shanghai and go south west, you'll get there. Um, it's a little bit further south of Wuhan. Now that everyone knows where Wuhan is, it's a little bit kind of southeast of Wuhan. Um, but anyway, Jiangxi is there. It's a province, and um, Nanchang is the capital of Jiangxi. So I was there, and I was I was um, I was chatting with a. Uh, a friend of a friend who is a, a junior doctor and she had just started out GP, uh, just started out her career. And, uh, she was carrying a, I believe it was a Michael Kors bag. So it's, it's kind of entry level luxury, but still quite, you know, it could be quite an expensive, expensive purchase, especially for someone who's, who's in their first year of their career. And that was just completely normal. Um, a, a very normal thing to do. And, um, kind of having like, keep picking on her for a little bit uh having you know connected with her on social media looked through her kind of seeing her posts come up now and again and seeing the kind of lifestyle that she lived it's a really interesting uh, kind of perception of what she's doing the pictures that she shares are her having a you know a coffee from an international coffee chain Pret or Starbucks or someone like that or her in a mall where there's there's a number of international stores behind her and so there's an element of of her keeping up with 
what's expected of someone who is in a professional career, you know, not earning an enormous amount, but earning earning well, um, but still dropping quite a lot of money on expensive expensive purchases. It's, it's kind of a you know a treat to self, if that makes sense. And that's that's quite normal um, because no, it's completely normal. Yeah, yeah. And so could... um, there's a there's a, um, a a social group which a social slang, and this is probably about six or seven years ago, I'd say. Um, which was uh, Yue Guangzhou. And Yue Guangzhou are um, a kind of a class of people, a group of people. And it's basically uh, those who live by the, the light of the moon. Uh, it's a very overly poetic way of doing it, about the light of the moon anyway, the moonlight tribe. Um, but it's about people who live paycheck to paycheck. And the moon is the monthly kind of thing as well. And it's salary to salary, it's paycheck to paycheck, and they they basically they they earn fairly well. They you know they live in Shanghai or somewhere like that, but they they, they drop all of their money each month on expensive purchases to ensure that they they look great and they feel great and all of that kind of thing. So it's it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting kind of phenomenon that there's there's less care about saving money in this younger generation. And uh, compared to previous generations, and it's I guess this partly to do with the fact that they've only ever known a China that's grown and grown incredibly rapidly and incredibly well and grown from strength to strength. And so there's 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 more of a consumer confidence in spending there, um, which is really, really evident amongst young people like like my friend there, the junior doctor or or like the you know the the young Shanghai marketing executive who uh, is in her first job, but you know, is still supported by her parents and, and feels happy enough throwing down quite a lot of money on on the latest it bag. So it sounds like there's a broad spectrum of luxury purchasing. I guess I guess like the West, but I guess in in, in the UK there are people that might aspire to luxury brands. They might buy one or two really nice pieces every other year or you know have have things that it's kind of like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna really save up for this but most people won't really go for luxury for luxury's sake i don't think i might be wrong um but then you've got the obvious you know the 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 footballers and the celebrities who you know got more money and they just they want the lamborghini and they want the ferrari and they want the da 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 um and then you've got the people that socialize in those kind of circles and but it's it's a relatively small chunk of the population that are regularly buying luxury and then of course you've got the uber wealthy people that live in houses in london that are worth 20 30 million pounds and and there's lots of people like that um so it sounds like there's there's a broad spectrum and i guess the way that we're going to look at the Chinese market is probably the first thing is to look at well, where do we fit in that? Do we want to be like the really exclusive that only the gazillionaires have even heard of and they just have it because, well, it's it's the thing that gazillionaires have and there's no advertising around it or, you know, it's just, well, of course I've got one because I'm a gazillionaire and everybody else has never even heard of it. Um, how, sure. how do we how do we work out where we're going to fit into that? Are we going to go for the, like you say, that kind of very broad spectrum of perhaps young 
middle class professional with great consumer confidence that yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna spend everything i've got on looking absolutely top dollar how do we how do we work out where we fit into the market well i think most brands should have already worked that out themselves uh, uh, just basically market. take their uk model yeah and completely and, and jump into china with it so when the, when you're talking about translation you're not kind of going hey you're you're only an eight but in china you can play as a 10 or you're you're an eight yeah, in the uk but you I want wouldn't. to be playing as a six so uh, I, I don't like to use that to, uh, to <laughs> no, but no. you know what i mean it's it's it, you can you you would stick typically you would stick within where you are so if you're i don't know if we want to talk about brands or not but you know ralph loren's got you can buy the Ralph Lauren that anybody can buy and it's a $40, $45 polo shirt perhaps, or you can get the slightly more boutique one that's £120 or, you know what I mean, is you, you, you would stick where you are in, in, in the Western markets and just Completely try and so, translate um, what the messaging is to do that same thing in China. A number of a number of years ago. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd love to see if that position actually exists first. And so, for some brands, the position that they have in the West might not actually exist in China, um, or there might be it might be a particularly full category or, or, or something like that. So, um, yeah, I guess things like um, Corvassier that suddenly got really popular amongst gangster rappers and everybody. It went from <laughs> it went from quite a refined brandy into a very street kind of drink if you've got money and want some bling then um and, and i guess that category of urban gangster may or may not happen uh, in, Chengdu, in china Chengdu in the same has, way but... Chengdu has quite a thriving little uh rap scene uh a really cool one as well they're, they're fun um higher brothers if anyone listening wants to check something out google higher brothers they're they're a fun little rap group out of out of Chengdu. Uh, How are we spelling I, that? I higher as in uh, higher and lower? Like higher as in higher and lower, yeah, and brothers. Um, they're, they're, they're a funny little rap group out of Chengdu, which are, um, yeah, a good little fun thing. Anyway, that I digress completely. Um, so finding finding your audience and, and picking in the pricing points is really important going into China. Um, and, and making sure that you hit... Uh, you kind of continue your audience. So the, the audiences will skew a lower, uh, as I said before, 48% of luxury consumers are under 30 in China, some, something similar. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I, it was 48 I read the other day. It's, it's, it's a very high number of younger consumers compared to the rest of the market. So naturally, the brands that aim more towards an older, more refined image might not do as well as the ones that are slightly younger and trendier. Um, but that's not to say that the audience isn't there because uh, as with anything in China, a small percent of a very big number is, is still quite a good number. <laughs> like it's, And China is a very big number on a lot of these things. And so when, when picking your brand positioning and getting the pricing right, a, a lot of brands went in originally at quite a high premium. And so when, when a lot of brands first went into China, probably you know, 10 years ago or so, even up until recent, to about five years ago, a lot of brands were sold at a premium in the market. And um, there's quite an in, in expensive import tax on luxury goods in the market. And so 
the cost of buying a similar priced uh, Burberry trench coat in China was was astronomically higher than the cost of buying it here. So we can kind of like one and a half, two times as much at times. It, it got really expensive to buy luxury in China. And so what happened was a number of kind of gray market channels sprung up where it made sense for people to be buying product here in the West, shipping it over to China and selling it there or um, buying product here on behalf of other people and just shipping it all back and pocketing a fee or a percent of sale or something like that. Um, and so this this market, it's it's got a name. It's called Daigo, um, D-A-I-G-O-U. It's it's an interesting market. I, um, I've, I've been following Daigo for a while. They're interesting uh interesting like buyers and sellers of things overseas it's it's simple kind of retail arbitrage buying low selling high uh but they do so they used to do so by avoiding paying taxes which was a big you know a big problem and there's a number of daigo that got thrown in jail and there's a couple of high profile cases about it but recently the the law has shifted so that daigo are now required to um required to pay taxes and required to be a little bit more legitimate, which is really good. It's an interesting, interesting challenge. And in Australia and New Zealand in particular, they, um, they actually encourage a number of companies to use Daigo as a, as a sales channel into the market. And it's, it's quite a common way of brands first entering the market is through Daigo. It's slightly difficult because you, you can lose control of your brand equity but if you're a popular brand, you're going to be die gold anyway. So there, there are kind of ways around it. Um, I once had this fun conversation with a Daigo who worked in Vista Village. And she was working in Vista, um, Vista for those who don't know, Vista Outlet Mall here in the UK. Um, Vista is very, very popular in China amongst Chinese tourists and Chinese people. Everyone seems to have heard of it over there. But anyway, they are, uh, Daigo there. She was working in Vista Village, uh, doing the minimum number of hours she possibly could so as to keep getting her discount um, and was buying brands and die-going it back to China. And she was she was making a, a, a kind of mid-six-figure UK salary here, so a, good, a fairly good salary, um, just die-going product and sending it back to China, shipping it back to friends or through herself in suitcases. And yeah, she just, she had a... a an eye for what was going to be popular, what was what was working, what wasn't. Built her audience in China, and was just yeah was 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 doing incredibly well because of this price difference that had been set up years ago. Now the price difference has moved away a bit. There's been a push back against that, and lots of luxury brands are working on a bit more of a price parity between China and uh, and their other markets, which is great. It's really good, and it's helped a lot of um, it's helped luxury brands grow a lot in China, and it it means there's a lot more uh, kind of clarity around how much value the Chinese consumer is to a lot of brands because as these gray markets were working, it was, it was confusing analytics of sales and confusing all these other matters as to where the actual purchase was happening and so how to allocate spend and how to allocate you know, advertising budget and all that kind of stuff is, it was, was being confused for big brands. And so... Um, actually evening out that is working though some brands are moving back the other way I, it was I believe it's Dior who um, Dior or Gucci one of the two of them um, had recently uh, announced that they're actually bringing their prices up in China again so 
that has caused a bit of a rush on, on, on uh, some of the stores in China. And so some of the pictures that we see of the, um, the revenge spending, they call it, of, of like Chinese tourists, of Chinese consumers lining up outside of stores as we currently speak, whereas we're all locked at home and all of our stores are shut. Some of it is because of that, because of the, the idea that they've got to get in now before the prices all rise up again, which is kind of interesting. Um, hopefully it doesn't happen. Hopefully they, they continue having more globalized pricing rather than localized pricing because it, it does does create uh, some difficulties with different different yeah, ways of dealing with the market. So it sounds like in China, <clears throat> excuse me. So it sounds like in China that um, luxury is quite mainstream. It's not. Yeah, it's not uh, exclusive luxury. It's people want nice things, and lots of people want nice things in terms of if people are very price sensitive. It's not so much the fact that it's just luxury. It's more well, luxury is almost moving towards being a commodity. You know what I mean? No, completely. The baseline, the baseline of what is considered kind of luxury and out of out of the reach of most is higher in China, in a lot of these places. Now, I'm not talking about the whole of China. Um, I, there are, of course, a, there's still quite a lot of poverty in China, though. I mean, the amazing story of China is that the amount of millions and millions that have been lifted out of poverty over the last 20 years, 30 years. But um, there, there is still the yeah there. The baseline amongst the luxury consumer, the baseline of what is considered luxury and what isn't is a lot higher than what we have as a concept in the West, and so um, in in the UK, and so that's a really like it it does create an interesting shift there uh, for a lot of brands who would be traditionally considered luxury here in the UK, where or even you know affordable luxury here in the UK, but still luxury, still a you know a, a a purchase that one saves up for and and makes as a special thing is a bit more yeah is a bit more mainstream there and is 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 kind of a bit more regular and considered. Um, one of the nice shifts I've seen in China over the last few years about luxury is a shift away from just the the kind of the big fashion houses towards more of kind of a niche understanding of luxury, and that's where um, that's where there's there's a little bit more room to play for a lot of the smaller brands, but also there's there's a little bit more of a an understanding of of traditional measures of luxury. There is a, a definite commodification of of some of the big brands, but there are kind of there are brands who have done particularly well starting out as as niche luxury brands as kind of uh, the undiscovered secret in China, and, and you know some of them most of them have kind of got to the stage by you know, having great products, great design, really interesting brands in their home countries. And then just, I heard the stars align and they, they hit the, the magic source. It can be slightly engineered to a certain degree, but most of the time it's, it's that they've just, they, they got lucky and got seen on the right person at the right time and it's all taken off for them. And so um, these kind of niche brands have a slightly more, um, a different position in the market and that it's not just wandering around showing you know, I have the latest Hermes bag or I have the latest Dior bag or whatever. It's a, I buy this niche Scandinavian designer because I understand that, you know, I understand a little bit more about luxury and I understand this position in the market. And so it's, it's, it's a, yeah, an ability to show connoisseurship, which is an interesting shift in the market, which I, you know, I, I quite like. I think it's an interesting move for a lot of brands as well as, as 
allows a lot more in the market, a lot more difference than just the big LVMHs. Mm, yeah, I can I can feel that. Uh, although I thought we'd cover a lot of ground in in an episode on. <laughs> translating british luxury oh, yeah. into chinese luxury i think we're only just scratching the surface because pardon me i you know i want to know about well what are the channels and how do we how do we really communicate that maybe we're we're the the cool luxury brand and, and do that thing like you were talking about go from go from nowhere to massive and almost have a life cycle of a brand you know it, it started off as super cool and only the super cool kids had it and then it spread and we went mainstream. And then by the time everybody's wearing it, including your dad, um, <laughs> you, you've kind of sold the brand on and you're, you're, you're doing it all over again with the next thing. Because part of me is thinking, I mean, Superdry isn't luxury, but I remember Superdry opening in Bristol and it was one shop. I mean, they might have had other shops, but I remember one on, uh, I think it's called Park Street, I think. And I kind of, I never went in, but I kind of cycled past and I looked in and went, oh, that's kind of, that's quite funky. And it was, it was very different. Um, although I do think they must have got the brand from drinking Asahi Japanese beer, which says <laughs> super dry on it. And, I, you know, it, it's got the Japanese writing and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and it went from that, oh, that's the only super dry I've ever seen anywhere ever to suddenly literally not my dad because he's, he's he's never going to wear super dry but you know lots of people's dads are wearing super dry and it's it's everywhere like a like everywhere it went from cool to oh my goodness my uncle george is wearing that you know it's it's kind yeah. of it's gone massive and and to some extent i mean that's that's that is a great success story if if you want to do that isn't it because you you take something you grow it from nothing explode it it goes mainstream Hopefully you sell at the right time, and then it it, it has a life cycle. I'm not saying that a super dry is going away or, or anything like that, but it it's there's a there's a life cycle there. Um, sorry, I'm rambling again. Um, no, no, no. I see I where guess, you're going with that. It's it's good because it's it's about kind of the scarcity of luxury as well. Scarcity. Well, it's, it's, I suppose to some extent is if you're a heritage brand, you absolutely don't want to do that in the Chinese market. No, because. In five years' time, when everybody's wearing it and everybody's got one, and everyone's gone, yeah, I've got, why would I want one of those? You absolutely don't want to do with it. You you want to go? We want to hold, hit the brakes on on the. We want to close down that channel. We don't want to sell as much of it. Well, um, that said, there's 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 the kind of the ways a brand reinvent themselves, and that's always um, you know getting new creative directors and getting a new direction and all those kinds of things are a way to reinvent oneself, new product lines, new, new things. And that, that's, that's been a good, a good bet for a number of brands that have kind of exploded in popularity. I mean, Burberry is the classic example of that. Everyone like the, the turnaround story of Burberry going from that, the, the, the Czech plaid baseball caps uh, that everyone would wear a lot of them being fake even uh, right through to where they are now in the market is yeah, it's a, like it's a fascinating shift. And Christopher Bailey um, and Angela Arendt, the, the CEO at the time, did a fantastic job of kind of turning that ship around and making it a very different beast than it is. Um, I'm also conscious that we talked a lot about, uh, so we've talked a lot about clothing um, and apparel in this, but there are some other, just very quickly to touch on some other really interesting kind of spaces. One of the, one of the places that I'm quite interested in recently is, uh, is alcohol and spirits and how that works in the market. And so for a long time, 
uh, whiskey is known, Scottish whiskey uh, is of course very known in China and it's one of the things that brand Britain is known for is, is, uh, is the whiskey here. Um, so many houses that I'll go into have a bottle of whiskey in the corner that someone who's been overseas has given <laughs> as a present the owner of the house uh, and it's sat there gathering dust and no one's really drunk it. Um, whiskey does get consumed like Shivas gets consumed in nightclubs when mixed with green tea, <laughs> which is a bit, bit grim. Actually, no, it's not grim, actually. I quite, it's, it's, it's a different taste, but it's, it's a bit fun. Um, but it's, like, it's a really interesting position that the, the drink of choice in China is a stuff called baijiu. Baijiu is, in fact, it's the world's most bought and drunk spirit, uh, much more than vodka, much more than anyone else. Like, it's an enormous, enormously popular drink, but it's only ever in China. It's a very, very strong drink in China. Um, it's made with sorghum and barley, sometimes with rice, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty potent fire water. I've got to say it's a, it's a powerful substance. Um, I, I've eventually developed a taste for it, but it's taken many years of trying. Um, but that's like, it's an interesting position because I, um, I, I've been following gin's approach into the market. Uh, gin and Baijiu are both clear white spirits. Um, Gin's a much more kind of drinkable drink than Baijiu for a lot of people. Baijiu is usually a lot stronger. And it's it was it's surprisingly popular, the growth of gin in the market. Um so whiskey, you know, whiskey's definitely done very done very well out of the market. There are some people who like it, but often often it is given as as a present and it's not really consumed that often. I haven't seen whiskey drunk all that much. Uh amongst the kind of the banquets in the places that I've 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 been in Baijiu tends to be the play, the drink of choice but yeah gin gin seems to have its place in the market which is a really interesting thing particularly for kind of London gins as a uh, as a, a specific brand that we have here in the UK it might be an interesting space to look into yeah absolutely um i'm just mindful of time a little bit so oh, yeah, is is there anything else I, th I think there's plenty of scope to to do another episode, perhaps a, a, a around luxury and brand, and, and maybe talk about strategies for um, almost getting a bit more tactical in terms of how how might we do this. And because actually, very early on, you were talking about you would use focus groups and you would develop the brand and what it might mm. look like and all the rest of it. Just be interested to know what you're doing there are you playing with logos and are you looking at the products themselves or is it about the copywriting etc but i think that's that's probably a topic for another time um just i guess just to wrap up really is there anything else any last words about translating british luxury brands for china that would would be valuable to the audience yeah sure um so i think the the message that i really wanted to drill home is uh, an element of kind of ensuring that you you stay true to your brand as much as possible, um, but you don't completely hold on to everything. If you are um, a brand that is, you know, that you're all about East London, then maybe that's a little bit too too niche and specialized and localized here. But if you're a modern brand, if you're a brand that doesn't doesn't harken back to tweed and hunting groups and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, lean in with being modern. Show show modern. Show 
show this modern side of of the UK that's there. You don't have to be the the stereotypical monocle wearing uh, British luxury brand in order to be seen as luxury. And in fact, it's important to make sure that you're not if that's your brand back home. Stick true to it, but in in good branding sense, don't stick true to everything. Make sure you you weigh up what's going to work and what isn't. Well, get someone who knows what they're doing to weigh up what's good and what isn't. Make sure that's a good dialogue with your agency, whether it be us or whoever, a good dialogue with the agency so that you as a brand understand why they're saying what they're saying and that that it makes sense to you as the brand and that you're comfortable with it. Um, Because, I mean, there's nothing worse than either not knowing what's going on with your brand in China at all or looking at something later and just just not feeling comfortable at it. The thing, okay, yeah, I know that we have to do X, Y, and Z, but I just, I don't feel comfortable doing this. Like, you, it should be, it should resonate and gel with home office as much as it does with the agency and then make sure that you, you find your place and, yeah, go for it. Wonderful. Tom, just remind us how to get in touch with yourself and Verb and Verb in uh, Verb China. Uh, sure. And how to take off first step. Yeah, sir. So, uh, so we're at verbchina.com. Um, and uh, I myself am tom at verbchina.com. So you can drop me an email directly or you can get to us through our website. Or, I don't know, hit me up on LinkedIn. If you search Tom Griffiths, Verb China, you'll undoubtedly find me. Wonderful, Cheers. Tom. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, David. My name is David James and I'd just like to say a big thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of UK Export Advice. Please do let others know about the podcast and why not also check out the Midlands Export Podcast which I produce for the Department for International Trade. If you would like me to produce a podcast or video for your organisation please do get in touch via LinkedIn or email me on david at brighthorngroup.com. That's David at Bright, as in star, horn, as in trumpet, group.com. Thanks again for listening and good luck with all your endeavours.